Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the fourth and final installment in my Batman movie review series. Today I am reviewing Batman and Robin. This is your host, Corbin. So this is coming to the conclusion here. I have already reviewed the previous three Batman films. Go ahead and check those movies out. This is the second Schumacher film. Batman Forever was his first. This is still continuing in the world that Tim Burton started. But nevertheless, it is somewhat of its own thing. So if you want to hear those reviews for the previous three films, go ahead and check those out. I'll link to those below. And if you haven't heard your guide to Batman and Robin, that's the first link below. Make sure to listen to that so you can know why there was such a fast turnaround to get this movie out of the media blitz, all the toys that were pushed out for this movie. It was a huge blockbuster event. And also, where is Val Kilmer? Why is George Clooney the new Batman? All of that can be found in your guide to Batman and Robin. Check that out while you're down below. We've got timestamps if you're ready to jump straight into the review, links to all of our social pages, um, a curated list of podcasts I think you would like to listen to after this one. So check out down below. And no matter where you're at, make sure to click subscribe and leave a five-star review. That's a great free way to help us out. So back in 1997, June of that year, I was a couple months over two years old. Clearly, I wasn't watching this movie. Even if it was on TV, I doubt I would have any recollection of it. or I would even understand what I was watching. I believe that I saw this movie for the first time when I was probably around five years old, is my guess. In my recollection, I'm not sure if this is true, I think we had rented it over the weekend. It was a Sunday, we had come home from church, uh, I had already eaten, and I went into the living room, popped the VHS on, and was watching probably about the first 15-20 minutes. I believe when Bane transforms and Poison Ivy comes into her own, that's when I shut it off. I was kind of scared by it, and this is a shockingly PG-13 rated film. And not just for some, uh, you know, action violence, but also for innuendo this time, which is something I'll be talking about a little bit later in the review. I doubt young children really would catch the innu innuendo. As an adult, I definitely noticed it. I was pretty shocked uh, why in the world they put it in here. This should definitely be PG. Um, this, I could see Schumacher's Batman Forever being a PG-13. It was going a little darker. This really is working with the toy companies to sell toys to children. That's why I'm just so shocked it's a PG-13. My guess is Warner Brothers was worried they would be scaring audiences away if they saw this was going to be the first PG Batman movie. Maybe adults, maybe teenagers would think, ah, that's kid stuff, and definitely by the trailer we're going to talk about here in a second. I think that's a valid reason they wanted to keep it PG-13. Well, they're trying to play both sides of it, and it didn't work for me as a five-year-old. I shut it off. I don't remember seeing this movie until supposedly March 3rd, 2015. I have that logged in letterbox as the last time I watched the film. I don't have any recollection of that. So I've seen this movie. I knew I'd seen it at least once before, 
This is at least my second full viewing of the film. Maybe I've seen it in between then and I don't remember. This is one of those movies where I don't remember a dang thing about it every time I watch it. But if I was old enough to go to the theaters, you know, I'm 10, 12, 13, 15, adult onwards, I'm I'm able to go see this film. Would I want to? Looking at it from a kid perspective, if I'm 11 years old, I think this movie looks like it might be really fun. It might be exciting. I was shocked to see they used Elfman's score again, even though Elfman hasn't scored a Batman movie since Batman Returns in 92. Um, if I was a little bit older, I think, you know, an older teenager, I think this movie looks like it might be a little too childish. I would definitely go rent it once it hit home video, but I probably would pass because that wouldn't be the cool thing to do is go see this looks like a kiddie movie. Well, listeners, if you have not seen Batman and Robin, it is currently streaming on HBO Max. It is also available to purchase um, digitally and physically. It's very easy to get your hand on a copy of this film. I've got my Blu-ray copy at home, which is how I watched the film. So go ahead and check it out. Then come back and click play here on the podcast and we'll be ready to talk about it. So here is your 30 second plot. Mr. Freeze wants to save his wife from a disease. Poison Ivy gets knocked into chemicals and she's a super villain all of a sudden, kind of Joker-esque. Also, Bane is created using Venom, which is kind of weird. Uh, He's simultaneously created, so he's her henchman for some reason. Alfred's family friend's niece... Only in a deleted scene do you find out that Alfred was in love with her mother, um, but it didn't work out, but he's always still held this love for her, and he just decided to kind of adopt her as his niece, I suppose. It's it's weird. Anyways, she comes to stay at Wayne Manor. She's there to liberate Alfred from the oppressive Bruce Wayne, which is not really a plot point that comes up until towards the end of the movie. Anyways. But she realizes he loves being there, so she becomes Batgirl. Also, Alfred is dying from the exact same disease as Mr. Freeze's wife, so the dynamic trio stop the bad guy and cure Alfred, and all's well that ends well, I guess. So the opening credits for this film are very similar to Batman Forever, and I gotta give them points for style. Um, They almost even pull a little bit from the Supergirl opening credits from that film back in the 80s. I will say their over-the-topness really kind of sets the tone for this film uh, with these opening credits. It's really crazy. We also get to see them suiting up in a really weird way once again. And the comedy is back, but this time it's Batman and Robin. And I, the, the first, I don't even know, 10, 15 minutes of this movie is just one gigantic adventure where... The same old Commissioner Gordon pops back on the screen and says a new villain is in town, Mr. Freeze, and this is setting the tone right away that it's just going to play out kind of like a cartoon or even more like Batman 66 where they would get a call on their red phone and they would it would be Commissioner Gordon saying, you know, the, so-and-so has taken over the museum, so-and-so has taken over the bank, and they'd hop in the car and run after him. This is exactly how... In episode two, Batman 66 would open. Um, They do have new suits. They have new costumes. I do actually like the Robin suit better than last time. Um, I do actually like the look of Mr. Freeze in this. I think, honestly, it's kind of iconic if you were a 90s kid. And I should mention, I actually really like the posters for all of these films, for all four. Even Batman Forever has a great poster. Um, This Batman and Robin, I still think it's a 
a very well put together poster um, just from, you know, a standpoint looking back at it. I think it looks pretty good. I will say the look of Mr. Freeze from the animated series is still my favorite, but I do think they did a good job in the costume department with a lot of these figures. Even Bane is, for the most part, comic accurate in how he looks. So that is a positive I'm going to give the film. These people really put a lot of sweat and hard work into making this a big action blockbuster film. Say what you will about the story, which I will say here in a moment, but the sets are huge. They really are truly huge. The costuming is huge. They really are trying on this. Um, surprisingly, or maybe I should say not surprisingly, they did bring the toy companies in early on, like a few months after Batman Forever finished, they went into production on this film and the toy companies did give a lot of input on how to create this stuff so it would be very easy for them to translate that from the screen into a toy a child could play with. I don't really care for that aspect, um, really commercializing this product. Um, so that is that does put a bad taste in my mouth how commercialized they purposely did make this movie. And it clearly came back to bite them in the rear end with audiences and box office just straight up turning on this movie. But as I was saying, the opening action sequence does set the tone. You know within the first, you know, 20 minutes what kind of a movie you're in for. It's really crazy. It's really over, over the top. I, I am actually having fun with this opening action sequence. Um, the sky surfing is too much for me to handle. But nevertheless, this movie does have a very brisk pace, particularly for the first half of the film, I would say. Um, you realize you're 30 minutes in and you don't even know it. Halfway through, though, I'm ready to take a nap. Halfway through, I've quickly lost interest, realizing that, you know, I can go along with stuff that's not sophisticated. I can go along with just fun, silly stuff. But this movie truly is 30 minutes too long. There's just not enough intrigue here provided in this film. And it's not really about the intrigue of the villains and their nefarious plot and stopping them. It's really just about the antics, the over-the-top, truly craziness of the film. I feel like I'm a little too old to go along for this two-hour adventure, but we're still trying to stay positive here towards the beginning of the review. I do actually like the presence Alicia Silverstone brings. She's not in the movie a whole lot, and unfortunately, she's not really given much to do at all until she figures out that she's living with Batman and Robin, and she becomes Batgirl. They should have introduced her into the world as Batgirl a lot sooner. She does run off one night. She just kind of, out of the blue, shows up. Seemingly might strike up a romance with Robin. Out of the blue, she steals one of his motorcycles. Realizing she's kind of keeping stuff from everybody, she does have a wild side. She just disappears and nobody questions her disappearance for a couple days. Um, the editing choices are really bad here. It's supposed to be like she's coming back the next morning, but we know that's not true because the next cut is to the daytime, seeing her leave in the night. So the editing's all jumbled up in this movie and she's a crazy street racer and Robin street races with her also, saves her life. She nearly goes flying over some super high bridge. So unfortunately, she really is an afterthought in this movie. Um, there, She's really here just to be set up for the end. 
Assuming coming back for Batman 5, she's going to be a much bigger player. As we know, and as we'll talk about at the end of the review, that never happens. I'm also still going to commend their usage of miniatures. These miniatures look incredible. Sometimes I thought, man, that just looks lifelike. That looks real. And I'm just so impressed with how big these miniatures are. They also do employ a lot more CGI. It has improved a lot since Batman Forever. Uh, it looks a lot better. It's still obvious. But for 97, I'm very impressed with how much visual effects, practical and digital, they incorporate into this film. They do have a new Arkham Asylum, which was teased, I guess, in the last film. I think it, it looks great as well. There is actually some touching moments between Bruce and Alfred here. Alfred is more of an afterthought in the first film, has some silly stuff to do in the second, actually comes more so into his own in the third. And finally, they do some emotional dynamics with Alfred because he's dying. They decide to focus on his and Bruce relationship. So Bruce has these memories of Alfred being there for him when he was a kid, when Bruce is sitting over Alfred in bed as he's dying. Bruce remembers how Alfred sat over him and read stories to him as a child. And you can see how the position has switched. This is smart because instead of focusing on Bruce's dead parents, which they did recreate and cut in a weird way in Batman Forever, they're focusing on his relationship with Alfred, which I think is really smart. And apparently some of this was Clooney's idea. Um, because they were going to go back to the parents, and Clooney said, that didn't make any sense for a 35-year-old man. Let's focus on Alfred. Now, Nolan will do this a lot better in his Dark Knight trilogy. Um, that's probably the best usage of Alfred I've seen so far, so far as this review has been recorded between Michael Caine and Christian Bale's characters. There's actually a dynamic relationship there, but I appreciate they're trying something new. Also, my last positive is the bat ears don't wobble at the end run. They wobbled like really, it was really goofy to watch his ears wobbling as they ran in the end of forever, but now they, they're rigid and they stay in place as his bad ears should. Now I just complimented their usage of the relationship between Bruce and Alfred, but I am going to knock them putting it in here in the first place. Why essentially kill off Alfred and why give him the same disease as Mr. Freeze's wife? This is entirely strange to me. If I, I can only see it here just to create some kind of emotional tension. Um, it's a weird choice nonetheless. Also, there's just stuff in here that can be fun, but also can just be stupid and hokey. Bane is in a trench coat. He's Poison Ivy's driver. He just has a lot of dumb things to say throughout this movie as well. Not to mention him and Batman never really have a truly awesome fight, which I think a lot of fans were probably let down by since he was the one to break Batman's back. And we wouldn't get to see that fully come to fruition in an awesome, truly awesome way until the Dark Knight Rises. There's just some bad acting in this as well. When Bruce is asked whether he would marry this lady, he says, marriage, I, um... Um, I don't marriage what um, that's literally his line delivery and it's just it's just bad speaking of Clooney he doesn't look good in the bat suit he does give more emotion as Wayne than Kilmer but he's still not as good as Keaton and I know people even think Keaton's not that great of a Bruce Wayne truly I'm gonna lay it down right here listeners I think the best Bruce Wayne interpretation live action we've seen so far 
is Robert Pattinson with Ben Affleck following up second. Christian Bale third. I won't go down the roster, but yeah, Christian Bale even is great, but he's not not my favorite rendition. And and Clooney really is towards the bottom of the barrel. Um, he's not given much to do as, as Bruce Wayne, and he's really not the focus. They don't give a care about Bruce Wayne in uh, most of these movies. I did want to wrap around real quick back to Alicia Silverstone because I did compliment some of the stuff. I did knock some of her lack of being in this movie. Yeah, the motorcycle chase scene, you realize we're really not in a Batman movie anymore. Also, her motivation is wildly confusing because her parents passed away not that long ago from what I understood. But then she says Alfred has supported her her whole life. I don't know. I don't think monetarily, surely, maybe emotionally. That's very confusing, um, their relationship. She also doesn't appear as Batgirl until 100 minutes into the movie, which is a huge mistake for a 120-minute film. Also teasing Batgirl in the trailer, prominently and featured on the poster as well, whereas everybody else comes into their own very quickly into the film. Her role as Barbara is just given the shaft. Alicia Silverstone really could have done better, I believe, in this role. She also has this strange motivation of wanting to free Alfred. And this is also, I learned some of this from the film. It's probably in some cut footage, but in the bonus features, she despises Bruce Wayne because she thinks Alfred is essentially his slave. And she is there to free Alfred. And that's why she's doing the motorcycle stuff to win money, enough money to basically get him out of his indentured servitude. A biz utterly bizarre plot it absolutely makes no sense now i know jewel schumacher has come out and said poison ivy at least uma thurman's portrayal as poison ivy is great and one of the things critics overlooked because they're too busy bashing the rest of the movie i don't see it i think she does a just okay job not even that great of a job um i think she's a really dumb villain her creation is incredibly dumb and thrown together um not as dumb as Bane's, but she just does okay. She does provide this very alluring attraction. Honestly, I, I wouldn't even know how to portray her live action. So I think Uma Thurman does at least a good job of being kind of this alluring, you know, sexy woman slinking around, you know, trying to be wily and get, get everybody under her spell or, or take them out. Unfortunately, her plot makes almost no sense. I don't even remember what her plot is. Um, this movie gets too convoluted or too messy or maybe even just too basic when it's trying to create these big motivations for these characters. It's, it's just not there. Now, while I did commend the craftsmanship of the sets, I cannot commend these sets in general because these Batman movies have always struggled with feeling in a very closed off or artificial environment. And these giant sets just feel like they're just playing around in this big sandbox, and I don't like it. I also don't care for the sexual innuendo in this film. Sometimes it can be incredibly raunchy, incredibly racy. Uh, it's just uh, just enough to probably go over kids' heads. It just doesn't have a place in here. I'm, I'm not really sure what, what they're trying to achieve with this. Also, another dumb thing I have to mention before I wrap up my review Alfred programs his brain into the bat computer to create an AI Alfred. What? Uh, really? And 
somehow he knew Barbara would figure out about the Batcave and he knew he was going to pass away, which ends up not happening, of course. But just in case, Alfred, this, you know, 90-year-old man is somehow a computer whiz. He puts himself as an AI intelligence into the Batcave. It's it's weird. Uh, it's pretty dumb. We do finally get new vehicles at the end of this movie, or should I just say new toys? We have the Bat Ice Mobile. I don't know how kids are going to, I mean, that's a seasonal toy. I don't even know what that is. I should have looked that up um, to see an old commercial of kids playing with that. I think it's the worst. I think it's so dumb. It makes absolutely no sense why they would have prepared that. See, Robin has this really dumb jet ski with a giant fan in the back, like he's racing down the bayou or something. They also change into all new outfits which just comes out of the blue. They don't really have time for that. And I mean, it really is just to sell more toys. This is just a giant commercial and marketing scheme. The ending also isn't particularly exciting. Gotham is frozen thanks to Mr. Freeze and they have to thaw it. A lot of the ending makes me just think of a giant Disney World ride. It just feels like you're a spectator in this ride. And a lot of movies back then did this. Look at the um, 90s James Bond films where they have gigantic sets, and, and part of me does feel a nostalgia for that. These gigantic sets, you know, where crazy stuff is happening. It's cool, it's fun. This one does not work for me whatsoever. Just the entire ending of the film, like, I cannot wait to just turn it off. Batman and Robin isn't a terrible movie. Really, for a 90s kids cartoon, it's actually all right. It's a true successor to the 60s series, but all glammed up for the 90s audience. The performances are truly goofy, everything is over the top, and wildly toyetic. I think kids may really have fun with this movie, despite its odd PG-13 rating and needless innuendo. All that being said, as a 27-year-old adult, I found myself itching to shut it off halfway through. Schumacher missteps once again by making this 30 minutes too long. Like I said, when I was a kid, I shut this movie off because I found it to be too scary. I'm guessing older children will get past the frightening scenes in the beginning, but grow bored to even finish it. I do appreciate the vision Schumacher brought to the live-action Batman world, even if all or most things don't work out. Batman and Robin receives 3 stars out of 10, with a strong not recommend. As for my ranking of these four Batman movies, I would go Tim Burton's original Batman, I'm actually going to put Batman Forever as my second pick. Batman Returns coming in under three. That, that's a close call there for me. And then Batman and Robin is squarely at the bottom. So I do have this one in my collection. I got it in the nine film box set, including the five Superman movies. I would say for me, this is the only way to own it. I have it on Blu-ray. I don't really need any of these movies on 4K. I mean, maybe Batman and Batman Returns really would look great on 4K if your TV is able to achieve certain black levels um, to showcase those movies off. But would I just buy this one if I didn't already have it? The completionist slash preservationist in me says yes. If I could find this for a really cheap price, I would bring it into my collection. Otherwise... Getting it in the nine film set on Blu-ray, which factors out to be about four and a half bucks per film. That's that's the only way it makes sense to me to own it, which I should mention is the first time I have ever owned Batman and Robin 
or Batman Forever. I never owned those movies previously. So other movie recommendations I have for you, Batman Sub-Zero. That is in the vein of the animated series. Um, there is some similarities here as far as Mr. Freeze's background goes with his wife. They actually took that from the animated series. Listen to your guide to Batman and Robin to learn more about that. I think that is a very exciting Batman film, and I think one a lot more people cherish than this one. I'm also going to be recommending Jingle All the Way, which is, I kind of love that movie. It's a great 90s fun Christmas movie starring none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sinbad. And it did actually just come out the year before this movie. So it's fairly fresh. That's very similar Arnold, similar one-liners. So check out Jingle All the Way. As for future developments, the studio did during the production of this film said, hey, you knocked it out of the park with the last one. We think you're going to do some great stuff with this one. We want to sign you for a third Batman movie. Technically, it would have been the fifth in the franchise. Scarecrow would have been the main villain, and he would have used his hallucinogens to resurrect, you know, psychologically, all of the villains from the previous films, even culminating in Jack Nicholson reprising his role as the Joker. It would have been titled Batman Unchained. I did actually write all about this and other Batman movies that never came to fruition in an article on the Silver Screen Guide website. I'm going to be linking to that below so you can read all about Batman and this supposed fifth film that really would have been bug nuts. And honestly, I kind of wish we would have got it. We do know we would have had a new Batman for this fifth film. Not sure who that would have been. George Clooney, you know, knew this didn't do anything for his career. He just thought it would have been fun to be a part of a big blockbuster movie. But once this was trashed by critics and audiences, the box office wasn't really any good. He said, I'm out. I'm never playing Batman again. Which, of course, is ironic considering... Ben Affleck said the same thing after Daredevil, but he did come back and play Batman too. Great success. So it wasn't just finances and cast and just a lot of those issues I talked about. Schumacher said he didn't have it in him to do a third film. He really enjoyed Batman Forever. He did have fun with this, but it took so much out of him. He just didn't have the passion to come back for a third Batman movie. Well, listeners, the question after the show, out of all of the villains from these four Batman movies, who's your favorite bad guy? Mine is still Jack Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker. Danny DeVito as the Penguin is coming in at second. Mr. Freeze in number three. I do like him as Mr. Freeze. Catwoman at number four. Riddler, number five. Two-Face, six. And Poison Ivy at seven. I really don't care for Two-Face at all, but I think he brought more charisma then Poison Ivy brings. They're different characters, but unfortunately, Poison Ivy is just a very forgettable character. So that's my list. I'm just curious which one is your favorite. Maybe even tell me your least favorite like I did. Or go ahead and rank all of them like I did. Make sure to email me your answers at silverscreenguide95 at gmail.com. The question and that email is below. Curious to see what it is. I'm eager to talk about it, and I'll even read out your answers on the next show. Well, listeners, I'm coming back next week with Joel Schumacher's The Lost Boys. 
That is one of my favorite summer movies. And I thought, you know what? I've already reviewed two of his movies that are kind of notorious. Why not go back and review one of his movies that is actually kind of a cult classic? So I love The Lost Boys. I'm not going to hide that. Um, I'm going to be reviewing some of my favorite summer movies. So I thought, might as well start with The Lost Boys. And just curious to see how, you know, Schumacher's directorial style you know started out and where it we've seen where it kind of ended and left off here but where did it start off one of his earlier films so that one check that one out before next week i think a lot of you are going to enjoy it as well um a lot of a lot of the vampire stuff that we know today did take some root i will say in the lost boy so we'll, we'll talk about that next week thank you listeners for coming along with me on this entire batman saga it has been quite the wild ride to you know go back and re-examine these movies from my childhood so i hope you enjoyed it make sure to subscribe make sure to join us next week we've got tons of other reviews uh, we've got all the superman reviews we just reviewed the latest jurassic world movie we reviewed all of those tons and tons of stuff in the archives for you to go and check out thank you listeners for joining me and i will see you next week with the lost boys The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide.